All right, so welcome back to The Cracks in Postmodernity. I'm here with Jeremy Clemen, who is a writer. He's covered topics having to do with Portuguese music, as well as all different kinds of music from around the world. He's done a lot of uh, literary translations and is studying uh, at Oregon State. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Getting a master's in fine arts. So Jeremy, first of all, thank you for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Yeah, so the reason why I reached out to Jeremy is because this week he had a really fascinating piece published in the atlantic about portuguese identity how should portuguese people be classified or you know are you latino are you white are you hispanic you know how do these categories apply to this particular ethnic group which has had a, a long legacy in the united states um so can you start by telling us a little bit about your own personal identity your own background and your, your portuguese heritage yeah, so my my relationship to to Portugal and and Portugueseness is pretty uh, idiosyncratic, I'd say in some ways. Um, my so my grandfather on my mom's side uh, came to the U.S. in the fifties, um, was was born and raised in Lisbon, was in was in the Portuguese Navy, and and just found himself here, and ended up staying. Um, and so yeah, one out of my four grandparents is is Portuguese. I don't. Uh, I don't feel comfortable calling myself a Portuguese American in, in the way that other folks do. Um, but uh, that sort of part uh, of my background had a, had an outsized impact on my life, um, in part because his wife um, I never met, um, was was estranged from, and, and she herself was uh, adopted. And so as a result, um, you know, besides my mom and my grandfather, functionally half my family on my mom's side uh, still lives in Portugal. Um, I lived in Portugal for a year and a half in roughly 2016, 17. I speak Portuguese. Uh, and so, yeah, I would say uncommon. Um, I didn't grow up in a, in a Portuguese uh, uh, sort of enclave, um, like like a Newark, like a Fall River, um, like an Artesia in, in um, California, which is actually not far. But um, yeah, that's more or less, that's sort of my, my relationship with um, Portuguese-ness. Also lived in Brazil for a while. Yeah, so in your article, you talk about how the way that Portuguese identity has been classified differently as time has gone on since you know, Portuguese people first started immigrating to the U.S. So for those who haven't read it, can you talk, can you give like a brief overview of how Portuguese people have been categorized differently since the beginning up until now? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Portuguese, and this is for the most part from my from my reporting um, that I did for the piece, but the Portuguese come largely in three waves, um, situating themselves primarily in uh, on both coasts. Um, and so you have places like Fall River, uh, Newark, other places in Mass, um, in Rhode Island, they still make up 10% you know, of the population. Um, and then on the other side of the other coast, California, um, they are in primarily the sort of central coast region, so greater Fresno, et cetera. Um, tend to do kind of better off there than they're doing on the East Coast, where they're living primarily uh, in squalor, working in factories. Um, their literacy rates are are not only lowest uh, among the lowest among the Europeans, but uh, among recent immigrants in general. And so very much arriving at, at the, the lowest of hierarchy, of labor hierarchies um, when they're here. Um, and uh, in the same way or a similar way to the Italians, um, considered largely non-white by, by wasps. Um, there, there's a, a sort of long, well-documented, like academic um, kind of body of, of work about the, the slurs um, that were used against them, et cetera. But the long and short, they were for the most part considered non-white 
um, complicated by the fact that uh, Cape Verdeans are also super present on the East Coast, and they largely, uh, they were intermarrying at the time. It's uh, very, very ironic and, and uh, strange in some ways that that their colonial past has uh, contributed to the the messing of, of how they're perceived here in the U.S., um, but that's kind of the case. And what about like the way that we're, we're currently talking about race, like the, the more recent discourse about whiteness, especially having to do with white privilege. Um, and I don't know, I guess the fact that ethnic whites, like it's no longer really a, a category that we hear much being thrown around in our discourse. Like sometimes you see people joking around saying like, oh, Portuguese are spicy whites. But again, it doesn't really have much currency. In our in our discourse today, so I don't know, like, how has the way we're talking about race today changed the way that Portuguese people are perceived by society, but also the way you perceive yourself? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I, I think that those or, or thinking about ethnic whites, Italians, also Irish, um, when they got here, largely because of the, the Catholic background and and um, the circumstances they arrived in, um, you know, as these groups. Uh, sort of intermarried into the middle class and and left these these sort of ethnic enclaves you know left these as you mentioned they still exist but um not nearly to the extent that that they did um say 50 60 years ago and so yeah you know one of the one of the topics that I was I was really interested in and I thought was really important while researching this was um comparing the income of these groups with the income of the middle class in general and so I, I think the the best argument against uh, giving sort of any type of special favor to these groups is that for the most part they have they have married into to sort of the broad swaths of white America and their income levels for the most part um, with some exceptions are, are comparable to other uh, other white groups. Yeah, and I, as you said, like there are a lot of parallels with Italian Americans because I don't know, like when Italians first came here, definitely were not considered white, both because of their culture, but also because of their complexion, especially if you're from the South, you're not, you know, as as light skinned as a, you know, a Northern Anglo-European. But it's interesting how like Italians realized that if they were, if they were to um, disassociate themselves with Black Americans and kind of prove that they were racist, like in a way it could gain them cultural currency with the wasps. And I, it's interesting how, like, I think it was when the first Columbus Day in the late 1800s that was um, this established, that was when Italians first started to be seen as white people because, you know, choosing Columbus as their kind of uh, their mascot gained them the sense like, oh, you know, we're part of the American legacy. We're part of this, this history. Um, and the more that they affected this kind of racist attitude, yeah, like made them more white. But at the same time, I see how a lot of Italians really want to disassociate themselves from wasps, and on a cultural level, at least, because again, like the cultural sensibilities are fairly different. You know, um, like you see a lot of Italians who who will mock quote unquote metagons. Like it's you know that's something you don't want to be like. And I, I see that you know in the the Portuguese enclave that I've been involved in that there's a lot of racism, especially directed towards Brazilians of color, but also Black Americans. You know they at times try to keep them out of the neighborhood don't run to them but at the same time like if someone says that they're white they freak out because like you know i'm not an anglo i'm, I'm portuguese I have, I have my own flavor my own culture so that that tension is uh 
you know, it's, it's sticky. It's, it's challenging. Um, but again, with the, the issue of privilege, especially economically speaking, you can't deny the fact that, yeah, like there's the fact that you can pass as white, the fact that you can choose to assimilate and then gain access to certain opportunities. Like this isn't something we can ignore. It's not something, and especially if like people of color can't work their way around that the way that, you know, a white ethnic person could, you know? Yeah. I, I think two, two things I'd, I'd say to that. Yeah. To, to your point, to kind of, if there's an argument against um, just looking at, at income levels, it's, it's one, uh, it, it, if you ask the vast majority of America, if you put, um, you know, somebody with darker complexion in front of, of most of America, particularly most of not college edu educated America, and ask them, uh, is this person white, you're going to get a, a pretty wide, uh, pretty wide sort of spectrum of responses, you know, part of my, my interest in writing this piece was um, my, my own grandfather, his name is Jose. Um, lived in a largely Hispanic um, area near near the Mexican border, um, not far from San Diego. Um, for for most of the 50 or 60 years he was there, and um, whenever I was with him and he was interacting with strangers, it was clear that they they assumed he was Mexican um, because he's in a largely a largely Hispanic area. His name is is Jose, spelled the exact same, right? Um, you know, my own my own grandfather on my on my dad's side. Um, uh, came to the California from Illinois, owned a couple of gas stations, um, not college educated. When I told him I was going to go visit Portugal, um, he said, enjoy your time in South America. Um, and so to your point, um, you know, you can, these things are complicated, right? Like you're, you're relying on people to make these snap judgments, which is, I, I think a lot of what sort of racial imagination is in the States. Um, and so to say that like, I, who, who, I look like I could just as well be German um, and white in the same way that one of the people I interviewed for the piece uh, is Carlo Matos, um, who could be anything from from Mexican to to Moroccan. Um, I, you know, there there is space for that. Like, yes, we're both white, but I, I don't think that we're white in the same way. Yeah, and it's as much as I think like the the white passing privilege is a factor that can't be ignored. That is, you know, extremely significant. I do find that the current discourse that we have right now that really focuses on certain power dynamics, especially when it comes to politics and economics, it does kind of flatten out the the role that, a, that our cultural sensibility plays in our identity. Because as much as yes, like we can blend in with the loss when it comes to certain economic opportunities, the cultural sensibility does tend to have a lot more in common with Latinos from South or Central America or the Caribbean, or even with Black Americans, there's, um, I, I just, I often find like the lost sensibility has this kind of uh, very purified, very genteel um, attitude towards life that in the Mediterranean, you're not going to find that. In most warm climate cultures, you're not going to find that. And I don't know, it's like, what role, like, I, I wonder, can there be a place for these cultural sensibilities in our discussions about identity and our discussions about politics alongside the more pragmatic ones, again, having to do with economic and systemic inequalities, you know? Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the people I interviewed um, said really similar things. Like one uh, guy named Denise Borges, who's the director of the Portuguese Beyond Borders Institute at uh, Cal State Fresno, which is again, a large, a large uh, Portuguese American um, area said almost the same thing, um, feels that there is, is more in common, is more in common with 
um, with Hispanic folks in the community than WASP, uh, WASP folks, in part um, because of the connection to Catholicism, um, and 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 just in, in part because of the way that uh, that he moves in in the place where in in Greater Fresno, right? Like he's running into WASP people. They're for the most part not considering him as as one of them. Yeah, and that also ties into this question that you addressed about both Latino and Hispanic identity, because, you know, and I, I've written about this too, like if you take Rick Caruso from California, he claimed as an Italian American that he's Latino, and a bunch of people freaked out. But when you think about the term Latin, classically speaking, it's talking about people whose heritage derives from the Roman Empire. So yes, that would include Italians, Portuguese, Spaniards. But then with Hispanic, it's a little more complicated because if you're from Spain, yeah, because you speak Spanish, you could say you're Hispanic. Portuguese, not exactly the same. So like how, can you explain a little bit about those the Latino and Hispanic categories as they apply to Portuguese people? Yeah, one of the the impetuses for writing this piece was uh, discovering that um, Portuguese American members of Congress uh, are grouped with uh, under Congress's list of Hispanic American lawmakers. Um, there was a piece in the Times from 2020 that came out called Faces of Power that talked about uh, the, the sort of ethnic makeup of the most powerful people in the US. And the piece considered these Portuguese American Congress people as, as people of color, right? Um, now, this, this grouping of them in the Hispanic category flies in the face of most contemporary federal definitions, um, which itself contradicts a bunch of state level definitions, right? And so like, uh, this is, I think, only half answering your question, but uh, when you have these constant contradictions, uh, you're, you're asking yourself for, for arguments within the community um, and arguments without the community because these things have real consequences for access to, to government contracts, things like affirmative action, et cetera, right? Um, I, I think I've, I've only answered half the question, but... Um, no, I, it's an interesting point, and especially in terms of opportunities like I don't know, if you're dealing with uh, like applying to a university or a job, because I, I've had students who are Portuguese who have asked, you know, when I'm applying to college on the Common App, do I check off that I'm Hispanic or not? Mm -hmm. And it's it's an interesting question because, sure, most of them in certain contexts could be white passing. Some of them, again, because of their complexion, maybe not as much. But in terms of, again, are they at an economic disadvantage? A lot of them did come from working class families who, you know, and our first generation, we're going to be first generation college kids. Like, should they get that special help? Or should the fact that they still, they are white and haven't had to deal with systemic racism, should that bar them from getting special privileges? You know, so yeah. it's, it's complicated. And, and on the question of Hispanic in particular, um, one of the the real sore spots among folks I spoke with was the fact that uh, people from Spain, um, for the most part, uh, some of the state definitions differ, but for the most part, people from Spain fall under the definition of, of Hispanic. Um, and so on the one hand, to afford these privileges to people from Spain and not from Portugal uh, is, is pretty goofy. Um, but at a, at a larger level also, um, part of the reason that the Spanish fall under this category um, according to, to one of the people I spoke with, Dr. Dulce Maria Scott, was because of extreme lobbying in the 80s uh, mm -hmm. from the part of Spanish-American business, uh, business people because they wanted to maintain uh, a, lot of these, a lot of these sort of institutional advantages that, that the minority label um, will provide, right? And so like, yeah, I, I don't, there's, <laughs> there's not an answer uh, 
to that other than like obviously um you know these categories especially for for the spanish are, are fall short yeah no i mean there's no simple answer but i do think this should provoke us to kind of widen the discourse on our identities because if we're just going to limit it to these very narrow categories again based on socioeconomic factors like you're ignoring a lot of other parts of what make us who we are the other pieces of our identity you know um, and it's like if you take an example like you know we were messaging each other about rosalia who's from spain but has been winning awards in latin american music categories so i mean technically yeah she's latin but she's making music that was created by people that's been colonized so like is it really fair? Um, should there be, I don't know, as an artist, should she have the freedom to express herself as she wants to? Um, it's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah, you know. I, I think it is complicated. Like, you know, I think of one of my my closest friends growing up, um, his dad was from Spain, um, came to California's 30s, guy named Fernando. Um, I understand that he's from Spain and that Spain is a European country uh, and a former you know, colonial power. Um, but a lot of folks that he's interacting with in California, he's he's dark skinned, has a heavy accent that is clearly of, of you know Spanish origin or of of a Spanish speaking origin. Um, to assume that that all of America is going to be able to make those quick distinctions um, in in sort of the small interactions that that matter uh, is I, I think giving more credit to most of Americans than they deserve, and so. Yeah, and it makes me think, um, I remember when I was going to study abroad in Spain, my younger brother, when I told him I was going to be going away for a semester, he was like, oh, I bet you're going to be eating a lot of tacos there. So this, like, Americans just don't really have these, uh, the nuances of, like, the different kinds of categories. It's just like, oh, Spanish, exotic, you know, we're going to group them all together. And, like, I don't know, even if you think before the current stuff with Rosalia, like, back in the 90s when Enrique Iglesias was big, he was marketed as like a Latin music, a Latin artist, you know, because again, there there isn't the category for like a Spaniard who's, and again, if we're thinking about the music he was making, it was this like commercialized, um, I don't know, like mix of flamenco, rumba, bolero, which is, again, you see it in Spain, but also you see it in the Caribbean. So like, how do you categorize someone like him? It's, if you don't have that kind of nuance and like, oh yeah, sure, he's Latino, he's Hispanic, whatever. Yeah, no, these, one of the, the people I interviewed who didn't quite make it in the piece had received uh, a, a, I think it was, don't quote me on the exact title, but it's like a Latin book award, uh, you know, award in, in 2012 or 2013 as, as Portuguese American. And, and so again, it's the lack of, the lack of consistency um, is, I think, in part the reason that a lot of these questions are, are still, are still lingering both in our, in kind of the discourse, but also again, in, in uh, legal, legal issues. Yeah, and so that brings me to the question about assimilation, which again, like is something that I've been thinking a lot about, writing a lot about, because I see on one hand, like if, again, if you look at one of these Portuguese enclaves, like in Newark, there's still a very strong Portuguese hold on the neighborhood. Um, you do have a lot of Brazilians, some Spaniards, you have more and more Ecuadorians and Salvadorians coming in, but most of the businesses are owned and run by Portuguese who still live in the neighborhood. You do have an increasing amount of people moving away to the suburbs, you know, as they make money off their businesses, they can afford to go off. And a lot of them do lose some of the cultural sensibilities. Some of them, you know, don't teach their kids to speak Portuguese. Um, and I, I don't know, like on one hand, 
there's definitely a value in becoming part of the culture and you know again learning English at least and becoming uh not being too held down by you know the old world ways but at the same time I do see something is lost in the process of assimilation especially again if you're moving to suburbia and losing the ties with you know with the community with your people so I don't know like I'm curious to hear any thoughts you have about assimilation as it pertains to the the Portuguese kind of context yeah it's um it's kind of a double-edged sword right and that like part of the reason that uh the the best argument for not considering the Portuguese as any different Portuguese Americans as any different from wasps is again because for the most part um they've been absorbed into into the sort of broad white middle class right um and so on the one hand as as a Portuguese American you're seeing you're you're happy that these income levels are rising and that like the, these communities are are gradually leaving um what were again sort of really poor living conditions historically etc right um like they come they're they're living in these isolated communities um and and for the most part staying that way for for a while right and so you're happy that they're sort of gaining entrance into the middle class but again like um fall river um it's pretty cool to walk down the street and like see four different portuguese bakeries right um you live in newark like there's there's something special and, and uniquely american in some ways about these about these communities right like um I go to an Italian-American enclave in the US, it's gonna to be totally different from uh, what an Italian enclave would look like in somewhere like Argentina 70 years ago. And that's part of the beauty I think of, of, of immigration is that these, these new, new identities are formed, right? And so you wanna valorize those and hold on to them, but you also want like your, your people to not suffer economically. Um, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and I can just say for myself that like I grew up in the suburbs with other, I mean, most of my classmates were ethnic whites, but kind of presented with the wasp sensibility, like we're totally assimilated. And I found that the lack of connection to my roots and speaking on a, like a, on a physical level, like not living around people who, with, with whom I can share a tradition, a language, a legacy, like I did really feel that void. Like I felt this kind of emptiness that that an ethnic identity can fill. And I found myself envious of the few classmates I had who were a little bit more tied to the roots, who primarily were the black and Hispanic kids, because you know, there are there are more of them. Their, their identity is more like a more of a tangible reality than for those of us who are Italian American or the Irish Americans. Um, and I, I think that that's like, again, within our discourse on identity, I think there needs to be this question of like, to what extent do our roots like shape our sense of um our our happiness our sense of purpose even on a psychological level because again if we if we don't have those roots if we don't feel like we belong to something concrete then i don't know identity runs the risk of becoming very abstract very very flat and it's it can be depressing i don't know i, I mean do you have you seen that have you felt that way in any at all for your in your own experience yeah i I have thought about it in, in a slightly slightly different context, I'd say, but along I think the same lines. Um, you know, if you come to to the U.S. with with just your nuclear family, um, which which so many immigrants do, like um, you, you speak about feeling a sort of loss of sense of community. Um, the way that that I've felt that is as I've especially as I've grown older, my my parents have got older, is that um, you know on the one hand Portugal had played a a sort of pretty defined limited role in my life growing up. My, my grandfather was from there, but um, again, as I've gotten older, it's it's primarily 
uh, I felt it as a sense of absence in some ways. Um, you know, I have I have no family on half my side that's here in the U.S. Um, everybody I called aunt and uncle uh, growing up has, uh, you know, realized at some point, oh, these actually aren't people related to me. And then, of course, they've since spread out and moved um, moved to different states, as so many people from California are doing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that this is a slightly different point um, than than you're making, but um, I think part of the experience of, of having family recently come over to the U.S. is is that um, your family tends to be quite quite small, and, and that sense of community is can be quite limited. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's definitely a big piece of like this need for community, this need to be connected to you know a stable group of people that that shapes your identity, shapes your sense of self, you know. Um, but that being said, I did want to move on to talk a little bit about um, your experience and your writing about Brazil. Um, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that you cover in your work. So I would say, like, let's start with talking about what have you observed about the relationship between Portuguese and Brazilians? Like what? I don't know. I'm curious about like the tensions, but also like the, the cultural exchanges, the, the enrichment from that interaction that, that you've seen. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I guess maybe first I would want to say that, uh, part, again, another part of the interest in writing this piece, um, much of what I bring up about the Portuguese in the U.S. is also relevant to, to Brazilians. Um, you know, the, the fact, for example, that we in the U.S. group, uh, a, a Ukrainian immigrant from Curitiba or Floripa in the south of Brazil, um, in, in the same sort of category of, of Latino, as somebody from the Northeast who is largely of, of indigenous or, or African descent um, is I, I think one of the best examples of why these terms um, fall short at times. And so again, that's I think a sort of uh, not a great answer to your question, but um, yeah, it's, it's a weird, I don't know, it's a weird relationship. Uh, Portugal is 10 million people, uh, Brazil is 200 million plus. Um, the Portuguese language is uh, lives because of Brazil, um, and again, part of part of um, what you had mentioned in your uh, in one of your substacks about relationships between Italian Americans and uh, I think it's largely blacks in the piece um, was was were these sort of pushes and pulls at both being on the sort of lower end of these you know kind of imagined race hierarchies. Um, and so, yeah, and I'm sure you know better than I do, um, communities primarily in the Northeast where you have both Portuguese and Brazil Brazilians. Um, the Portuguese are at once seen as this other category, but are at the same time, uh, seeing the Brazilians as even even less, right? Um, I don't know, it's it's just this weird push and pull, I think. Yeah, and that's something that I've observed in Newark that especially older Portuguese people who live there like will have this kind of animosity towards the Brazilians because you know they're not like we're we're superior to them. Um, but at the end of the day, like they have to interact with each other because they're renting to the Brazilians. You know they're buying they're uh, you know frequenting each other's businesses and then the shared language. Um, like there's, uh, I feel like the, uh, the tension is can be surface level a lot of the time. Um, but it's again like the racial factor is uh, complicates it because a lot of the Brazilians are white passing. So it's you know, at what point can you make this claim of superiority based on your race? You know, um, but other than that, you you've written a lot about Brazilian music, um, and it's the first thing I want I'd want to ask is like, 
you talk about how the like the Latino kind of label um, is further complicated by um, the the differences of Latin of uh, Brazilian music because you know, in the U.S. sometimes it is marketed as Latino, especially if you think of like bossa nova. Like some people will say, oh, you know, it's just like it's just like salsa, it's just like bolero. Um, so I don't know. Like, tell us a little bit about your observations with Brazilian music and how it's conceived, how it's categorized. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, in, in this sort of hodgepodge world music, uh, I, I think label that it sometimes gets, as you say, along with salsa, et cetera, um, it probably erases the the largely black influence of of a lot of the a lot of the music, um, especially like Rio funky, um, et cetera. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think I have a great a great answer for that aside from like. It's just another example of um, the inadequacy of, of grouping a place like Brazil um, alongside um, other uh, sort of Central and South American countries. I don't know what what I know you've written about the topic. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I mean, at least like if we take the, one of the more contemporary forms of popular Brazilian music, like you know, funk, funk carioca, however you want to call it. Um, <laughs> The way I found it was through um, the YouTube algorithm, watching a reggaeton video by Jay Balvin. There is the remix, um, it was the Boom Boom Tam Tam remix with Jay Balvin. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I was, so I listened to it, I was like, okay, Balvin's on here. And, you know, the rhythm is distinct. It's like the funk rhythm is not the same as the, the reggaeton dembo, but it was being marketed as like, oh, it's this kind of like cool Latin American music, this dance music, uh, which is, you know, it's racy, it's sexy. Um, and the more that I like looked into the history of funk, like you see that it has its own story. It has its, yeah, sonically, but also culturally, with the way that it evolved out of the favelas and the, you know, the integration of Miami bass, of freestyle, of, you know, traditional Afro-Brazilian kind of drum patterns. And again, in America, it, I mean, it's not in the U.S. It's not really taking off that much. You know, there are some people who have heard some of the more popular songs, but but no, like it, it's it's difficult to categorize. And then if you look at someone like Anita, who started out with this kind of pop funk kind of sound, now she's making reggaeton and she's being played on you know those Spanish stations in the U.S. Um, and she and she speaks Spanish, so it's uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting, but I feel like for people who don't like look more deeply at the history of the music they're listening to at the you know at its story it's hard to really appreciate it for what it is and then just being you know grouped into this conglomeration of like as you say world music of this exotic kind of music you know yeah no i i agree i don't think um some of the collaboration that's happening right now between brazilian and, and american artists uh especially brazilian and, and uh spanish-speaking artists um happens without the the explosion of of um spanish language music um to to anglophone audiences um anita to her credit i think as you mentioned often is now performing in spanish um probably saw it as as a conduit to a larger audience right um and um yeah i credit credit to her um although i i do hope that um the the particularities of what makes brazilian music fascinating are not uh, lost as it um appeals to a larger audience yeah, and, and the one positive thing I have to say about like this kind of pop funk that's making its way around is like it did become a door that opened me up to more traditional forms of Brazilian music because 
like when I, you know, going out in, in Newark, there's a lot of places where they have live music. And right now they're playing a lot of, um, it's, uh, what are they calling? It's like Foro Nejo, it's like Foro and Septanejo. And it's, <laughs> there's a lot of like a funk undertone in it. So it's like, okay, I recognize the beat a little bit, but it's, you know, it's its own genre. And then like listening to that, I, I started looking at the, the samba, the bossa nova, the more traditional kinds. Um, so I think like that's one of the positive things of like the globalization of these these genres. Like again, for those who are interested, you can discover a lot through them. But it, at the same time, it can become very reductive. But I have to say, like the more I've discovered about Brazilian music, it's like it's really it's it's its own thing. Like there's such um, an incredible mix of cultures going on and like real artistic genius in in some of these artists. So I don't know. I I've been enjoying what I've discovered through it, but. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and one of the, I think the fascinating things about living in Brazil is that like, it's, it's of course, uh, English language globalization is, has infiltrated nearly every corner of the earth, right? But like, you're in a place with a really, really rich um, sort of artistic history of, of its own and, and ongoing. And so like, to, to go out um, on a night and, and not hear any English language music at all, um, again, that's not gonna happen every time. But the fact that there are still places like that where that's that's a possibility is um, fascinating and worth uh, trying to to preserve. I think. Yeah, and I, I do want to touch on you know a kind of controversial topic, but connected to funk. So I I first found out about Bolsonaro not through the news but through this. Uh, I guess he had someone do a campaign song for him, and it was like a, a funky MC, and during his campaign cars in Newark were like blasting this song and they had the Bolsonaro stickers all over it and I started seeing the posters and it's it's weird because like okay it's kind of funny that you have this presidential candidate having a, a funk MC make a song for him at the same time you know like as you've written in some of your articles like has had some choice words to say about funk especially with you know like you can see there's a racial charge behind it um so I don't know. I am curious to hear some of your observations about the Bolsonaro phenomenon, but especially as it has to do with what we've been talking about, about like identity and, and whatnot. Yeah. So I was in, in Brazil in 2018 um, when Bolsonaro was elected. Um, the city I was in, Curitiba, roughly 2 million people. Um, I think on the the first round, you know, the Brazil, Brazil uh, voting thing will have two rounds, but I think on the first round, 76% of the city votes voted for, for Bolsonaro. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, again, a totally different context from the US in that the South is tends to be uh, much more well off. Um, Curitiba is, I, I think, in quality of life is probably comparable to some of the poorer US states. Um, and so it, I don't know, yeah, at the same time, like you go out and, and you're listening to the funk and everybody's having a great time. Um, and then you're realizing, oh, three fourths of these people have voted for Bolsonaro. Um, that, that cognitive dissonance was, uh, was aware, I, I was, was in, my, in my head at all times. Um, and so, yeah, I, not, I think really much intelligent to say besides it was a really kind of bizarre experience and also like, uh, demonstrated how the different ways that populism can go um you know like in here populism is, is associated with um with largely middle america largely folks having gone to college uh, wasn't the case there 
um, populism still still took hold. Um, so, yeah, weird time to be there. Yeah, interesting. So uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you, um, yeah, I want to hear a little bit about the feedback you've been getting on the article because it sounds like you've had some varied responses. Yeah, so I was surprised. I, I think it has come in waves. Um, first, to to my horror, uh, white nationalist Twitter seemed to to pick it up. Um, the messages were largely incoherent. I think that they were probably just, I don't know, saw something that could be misinterpreted as race, as race science and kind of ran with it. Um, have also gotten, uh, I would say, a mixed response from, from the left. Um, I, I think a lot a lot of folks who, who read the piece um, saw parallels to um, kind of the ongoing struggles that um, Latino and Hispanic communities, for example, have in, in these um, kind of classification things, which are inevitable for things like the census, um, for affirmative action, et cetera, right? Um, and so, yeah, I would say largely a troll response from the right, um, a mixed response from the left, um, a lot of kind messages from Portuguese Americans um, saying this is something I've always thought about. Um, I, you know, I've talked about with my family, I've always felt in this kind of weird apart category. Um, a real mix, though I, I will say, I think a lot of the response in part has been to the title, um, which as you know, writing for a large publication, you don't really have uh, much control over. And so you see the title and you think, oh, they're, they're getting the calipers out or like, what do you mean, right? Um, but all, all to be expected, I think. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fair. So um, before we go, Jeremy, anything that you wanna plug, anything you wanna share with the listeners? Um, you can follow me on, on Twitter, I, I guess, um, at Jeremy Clement. Um, I, I tend to be most active there. Um, we'll, we'll probably, uh, shy away from writing about race and ethnicity again for a while. Uh, just give myself, give myself a second to breathe, um, write a lot about, uh, sort of disability politics, um, in, in other contexts. So yeah, that's, I guess the only thing. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me again. This was great.